Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church and Mike Kresnick, also from Coram Deo Church. <laughs> hey Mike. Yeah, Mike. <laughs> On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life and today we're talking about the Holy Trinity. Third Wednesday Theology, Herman Bovink Day. Welcome everyone. It's back. It's back, and you're back. I'm back. Hey, you want to? Why hear am what, I always gone? Do you want to hear what Dusty White would sound like if he smoked a pack a day? Here you go. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Dusty's here, but he doesn't sound like but Dusty. We're not sure. <laughs> I mean, what if my voice was like this all the time? You would. You would have a radio show. I would. You would be a DJ. Yeah, late mm-hmm. night, obviously. Be like, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Did you ever wow. take a class with Steve Brown at RTS I Orlando? Did. That guy has an amazing that voice. That kind of almost sounds like Steve Brown. He does. Um, Herman Bovink, Chapter 10, The Divine Trinity. Uh, we're talking about God in his triune nature. Um, man, this is a great, rich chapter. I think what I want to do is I want to summarize, if I can, briefly. <laughs> we'll try to be brief. Herman Bovink's method in this chapter, how he goes about teaching us about the Trinity. And then we'll just sort of zoom out of that and, and talk about, in general, uh, observations from the chapter. So for those of you who are reading along, welcome. For those of you who aren't reading along, hey, you should read along. Uh, the book is The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bovink, um, published by Westminster Seminary Press. It's one volume. It's about 600 pages with indices. Is that right? 600-ish pages. Someone check me. 650-something pages with indices. Um, that is correct. Thank I you, Mike. Confirm that it's almost as long as the Oxford Book of Christmas, right? The Oxford <laughs> Christmas Handbook. So, yeah. um, the Divine Trinity. One of the things we love about Herman Bovink is just how devotional he is in how he writes about theology. And so, here's how he introduces us to the triune nature of God. In considering this part of our confession. It is particularly necessary that a tone of holy reverence and childlike awe be the characteristic of our approach and attitude. For we must always remember that as we study this fact, we are not dealing with a doctrine about God, with an abstract concept, or with a scientific proposition about the nature of divinity. Rather, in treating of the Trinity, we are dealing with God himself with the one and true God who has revealed himself as such in his word. It is as he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he reveals himself to us also in his word and manifests himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. So I love the idea of approaching this subject with childlike awe and worship and humility. So um, let's do that now. Bavin goes on to say, the article of the Holy Trinity is the heart and core of our confession, the differentiating earmark of our religion, and the praise and comfort of all true believers of Christ. This is at the heart of Christian faith. Um, if you ask what distinguishes, if you think about the monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, what distinguishes the Christian faith from those other two is the fact that we have a, a triune God. We believe in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is distinct and unique and the earmark of our religion, as Bovink says. Now, let's, let's talk about his method. He says, hey, you know what? Here's one of the critiques people give when we talk about the Trinity. Hey, you know what? This is the fruit of human argument and academic learning. 
the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity. This is a bunch of people that sat around and thought about it for a few hundred years, and they invented this doctrine. This is academic, stuffy stuff. It's not worshipful, devotional Bible stuff. Um, here's Bob Inc.'s answer. The Christian church itself has always had quite a different idea about that. It saw in the doctrine of the Trinity no discovery of subtle theologians, no product of the wedding of gospel and Greek philosophy, but a confession, rather, which was materially concluded in the gospel and in the whole word of God. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Because God has so revealed himself in his word. So he wants to say, look, we're not, when we talk about the Trinity, we're not talking about philosophy. We're not talking about church history. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about how God has revealed himself. And then he goes on a long, uh, I don't know what you call it, excursus, I guess, dealing with progressive revelation. He's saying, hey, God revealed himself progressively over time. And so here's what we see as we read the Bible. In the days of the Old Testament, um, the thing that comes to the forefront is the oneness of God. You think about how the Old Testament speaks of God, it places a lot of emphasis on his unity and his oneness. And Bavink says that's because the Israelites were surrounded by idolaters and mostly polytheistic pagans who worshipped many gods. And so the distinguishing feature they needed to understand about the nature of God is that he was one. He goes on to say, despite the fact that the oneness of God is so strongly emphasized, the distinctions within that unity of the Godhead come to light also. And he mentions that in the Old Testament, we see emphasis on the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So he says, as the Old Testament introduces us to God as one, right, the great, the great Shema of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, um, we also see that God works by his Word and by his Spirit. And so when we think about Word and Spirit, as those things begin to take shape throughout the history of progressive revelation, where that's going to get us to is the full revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. We think about John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so this connection between God creating all things by his Word and by his wisdom, and that Word and wisdom being personified then in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so he, he walks us through the Old Testament um, speaks about things that we see like the angel of the Lord, um, the spirit of the Lord. And then he gives this amazing paragraph toward the end of his uh, Old Testament summary, page 133. He says this, In the future, in the last days, the Lord will call up out of the midst of Israel such a prophet as Moses was, and the Lord will put his words in that prophet's mouth, Deuteronomy 18. This one will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. He will be a king out of the house of David, 2 Samuel 7, a rod out of the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11, a king judging and seeking judgment, Isaiah 16, a human being, a man he will be, and the son of a woman, Isaiah 7, and he will be without form or comeliness, Isaiah 53, but at the same time he will be Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, the angel of the covenant, Malachi 3, the Lord himself appearing to his people, Hosea 1 and Malachi 3. And he bears the name of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. This manifestation of the servant of the Lord is to be followed by a richer dispensation of the Holy Spirit. As the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, this spirit will rest upon the Messiah, Isaiah eleven forty two and 61. He will be poured out upon all flesh over sons and daughters, old men and young men, servants and handmaids, and he will give a new heart and a new spirit so that his people may walk in his statutes keep his ordinances, and do them. 
Thus, the Old Testament itself points out that the full revelation of God will consist of the revelation of his triune being. Now, Chris, one of the things you've said about Bonfic is that he does such a beautiful job combining systematic and biblical theology, and that's what you see right there. He's just walking us through the prophetic literature of the Old Testament saying, hey, here's what the prophets say is going to happen. Here's what the servant of the Lord is going to be like. And he just unleashes all these quotes from Isaiah and Psalms and Jeremiah and the minor prophets and says, here's what the Old Testament is preparing us for. It's preparing for us for the coming of the servant of the Lord, who's also going to have the spirit of the Lord dwelling upon him. And so as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we should be ready for the Lord to reveal himself through his servant and his spirit. Yeah, it would be a mistake to think that the Trinity is somehow this hard right turn in the New Testament, that the seeds of it are all over the place in the Old Testament. If you consider the multi uh, nature of how God works in the sense of spirit, uh, word, servant, angel. But then even he points out how the the word for God, Elohim, and how that it's plural, and how at a time um, some scholars would say, hey, that kind of points to the Trinity. And he said a better understanding of that is just the rich life that is within God and the way that that is expressed in the Old Testament. So if if you see the richness of the Old Testament, then how that comes to fruition in the New Testament, it isn't a hard right turn. It's actually this beautiful unfolding of a redemptive revelation. Um, we have been reading another book as a staff team on the Trinity by a different author. And one of the challenges in thinking about the Trinity is the difference between the external Trinity, the Trinity as we experience God's work toward us, and and the life that God has within himself. And so... Um, Sometimes it's helpful to start with that second category, how we experience God's work toward us, because it helps us sort of think about the distinctions in the triune being in God himself. And so Bavink says this, the work of salvation is one whole, a work of God from beginning to end, but there are three high moments in it, election, forgiveness, and renewal. And these three point to a threefold cause in the divine being, that is, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he helps us think about, hey, if we think about the three high points of salvation, election, forgiveness, renewal, election is the work of the Father, forgiveness is the work of the Son, renewal is the work of the Spirit. These are all the one work of salvation accomplished by the one God on our behalf, but it, but we can see how the, the distinctiveness of each person playing a role in our salvation as we experience it. And that helps us sort of begin to understand some of the distinctions that the scriptures make in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right after that, he goes on to talk about the different roles. And I found that very worshipful because I think when we're talking about the Trinity, we get tripped up a little bit on, okay, well, what's the Spirit do? What's the Father do? What's the Son doing? And that that's also why Bob Inc. is worshipful because he he's just displaying uh, right away in the way that he writes about this. For example, he says the threefold activity of God for while the father gives the son to the world, John three sixteen, and while the son himself descends from heaven, John six, the son is conceived of Mary of the Holy spirit, Matthew one. And so that whole paragraph is just worshipful. Yeah. He's just sort of working out the, the nature of how we experience the whole work of the Trinity in the work of Jesus and in the, the proclamation of the gospel. Um, so we have three, Persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And um, Bavink sort of wants us to think about the fact that in, in the New Testament, if you're looking for what's the high point, what are the places in the New Testament where it's sort of we see most clearly, most distinctly, or most concisely 
the the doctrine of the Trinity expressed. It's in the the baptismal command, Matthew twenty eight nineteen. It's in the the language we use in benedictions, Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Um, it's in the baptism of Jesus, where you hear the Father speaking from heaven and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Um, and, and so these are places in the New Testament where you have these very distinct sort of manifestations of Father, Son, and Spirit. And I like what he says about the language of persons. This is toward the end of the book, or sorry, the chapter. He says this, We should, in the use of these terms, always remember that they are of human origin and therefore limited, defective, and fallible. The church fathers always acknowledged this. For example, they held that the term persons, which was used to designate the three ways of existence in the divine being, did not do justice to the truth of the matter, but served as an aid towards maintaining the truth and cutting off error. The word was chosen not because it was accurate in every respect, but because no other and better was to be found. In this matter, the word is far behind the thought, and the thought is far behind the actuality. Although we cannot preserve the actuality in any but this inadequate form, we may never forget that it is the reality itself and not the word that counts. So what he's saying is, hey, if we talk about the Trinity, even our best words are just our best attempt to summarize something that is sort of inexpressible and beyond our comprehension. And so don't get stuck on the words. Let the words lead you to reflection on the actuality of the reality of, of God's nature. Um, another interesting point uh, that he makes, because you sometimes, if you talk about the Trinity with people, sometimes what you find um, is, is because the Trinity is such a high and holy thing, because it stretches our minds so much, and because it's kind of philosophical, you're talking about persons and essences and, right, oneness and threeness. Um, people who just love the Bible sometimes say, hey, why, why do we have to think about, like, why does it matter that we learn to use all these words and this language? It just, it, it seems sort of lofty and mystical and philosophical. Um, and sometimes people push back on the distinctions that the Trinitarian theology uses between essence and persons or essential and personal characteristics. Here's what Bavig says. There's no reason at all why the church should not use such terms and modes of expression. For the Holy Scripture was not given to the church by God to be thoughtlessly repeated, but to be understood in all its fullness and riches and to be restated in its own language in order that in this way it might proclaim the mighty works of God. Mm. Reference to his title. He plugged his own book. Reference to his title. But here's what's important about that. What he's saying is, look, if all we're ever going to do is restate the Bible's language in the exact same language the Bible uses, we won't ever say anything meaningful because we're just recapturing its own language. Part of what Christians are called to do is to take the truth of the Bible and state it in fresh ways, bring it into the languages of the world in ways that help us understand who God is and what he's like. And so it's right for us to think about what is an essence and what is a person and how do we grab language that makes sense of what scripture says? How do we use extra biblical language, language that's not in the Bible itself, but that seeks to summarize and encapsulate what the Bible teaches? This is always what we're doing when we do theology is we're taking the data of the Bible and we're trying to summarize it in new and fresh ways that bring uh, bring it to bear on our lives and on our hearts. Can you guys speak more to uh, why this doctrine in particular is maybe one of the most important 
ones to understand and know the language of and how it even like implicates our lives, not just implicates our minds, but implicates the day to day. I will say pastorally, um, it's really important for an understanding of the Trinity because whether or not people even notice it, they're talking about, when they talk about God, they're usually talking about a guy who's mad at them and that maps on, it's always important relationally to see how the Trinity manifests itself in pastoral work is what I'm trying to say. And it's really helpful to have a, a full understanding of the Father Spirit because um, if if somebody's only concerned about who God wants them to be, they're going to be primarily concerned about sanctification and the Spirit doing that work. But I can't just have one-third of God. I have to have the full. I have to have every person at work in me, and I have to have a good understanding. That's actually why I like Bob, because he, he dedicates two paragraphs here at the end, Bob, that you were referencing uh, about just how I have to learn that. I have to learn who God is and I have to be dedicated and devoted to keep learning about it. And I would just say that that learning is experienced as it's worked out with people helping me learn it. Do you guys remember when we did the podcast on the gospel as father movement? Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I think what we talked about in that podcast, I think in some ways gets at your question and that if we do not have robust Trinitarian categories, we can kind of err in various ways that we can become Christ-centered at the expense of understanding that Christ's mission was to bring us to the Father or that the Spirit and how the Spirit is at work in us. And we, we in, in a lot of ways, cut off our own discipleship, our understanding of our discipleship, but understanding the fullness of how God has redeemed and is renewing us. And and if, if your understanding of the Trinity, not necessarily, yeah, to, you know, kind of some of the philosophical categories, but at least— understanding how God, Father, Son, and Spirit has worked in redemption and the fullness of that, to your point, Dusty, you miss out not only in worship, but also understanding how God is at work and how he intends you to live as a disciple and depend upon him, Father, Son, and Spirit. So our our discipleship, our worship, our understanding of God all gets kind of deficient in some ways if, if we don't have kind of robust categories here. A.W. Tozer famously said, in chapter one of Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because if you think about what we are doing when we are worshiping, we are we are worshiping whatever our concept of God is. We, we, we don't have unmediated access to the person of God. We have concepts that are formed in our mind. We have a sense or a, an idea of what God is like. And that's what animates our worship and what drives us. And so Tozer says, therefore, it matters deeply that our idea of God conform as much as possible to the way that God actually is, to the way that God has revealed himself to be. And he actually says that Christians unknowingly can be idolaters Mm. if we worship God in a way that God has not revealed himself to be. If we have an idea of God that doesn't match who God is. It's a God in our own image, right? And so the... The importance of the Trinity is if if all of life is about the worship of God, then we have to understand what is God's nature like so that we can worship God rightly. And as Chris just said, when we when we have a, a, a non-robust 
Trinitarianism, it always leads to weirdness. It always leads to error. It always leads to bias. It always leads to emphasizing certain things and failing to emphasize other things. Um, and, and I think, you know, John Frame used to say that he, he, he would make the case, hey, all of reality has a Trinitarian structure to it. If you think about the nature of just how we understand the world, the world itself is kind of everything sort of mirrors a Trinitarian structure. Now, now John Frame was very into triangles and thinking <laughs> Tri- about think about everything in, in terms yeah. of threes. But but I think he was onto something. It's just like there's, you know, there's a reason there's three primary colors. Uh, there's a reason like there's there's there. It's interesting. The more th- the more places you look in the world, the more you see there's kind of this threefold structure to reality that that I think is designed to point us to the nature of God. Bob, in our preaching and as you've trained us liturgy leaders, and even as you've written liturgy for our Sunday services, you've intentionally tried to be um, distinctly Trinitarian in the language that we've used, even as we think about how we preach. Is, it, is this why you you yeah. want to shape your people in this language? Yes, and because of what Chris said, because I think there's been a evangelicalism, if that is a thing, whatever our tradition <laughs> is, whatever you want to call the tradition we come out of as, as Protestants in America, we have tended to be a Jesus movement that that has a anemic view of the Father and of the Spirit. So I'm trying to correct that. And also I'm trying to to pull God's people into a fuller, richer sense of the nature of what God is like. Um, because I just think we haven't thought well about that. And because I think all of our other errors and bad thinking are downstream of not thinking rightly about God. I was with a young man in our church recently and Bob, he referenced your John, we're going through the gospel of John. He referenced your John three sermon and how Jesus had to come because, because he wanted the father wanted to be in relationship. Okay. That that's actually profound. Yeah. So because if I'm just focused on Jesus saving me and Jesus saving me and Jesus saving me, and then every now and then maybe the spirit does a couple magic tricks. Um, (laughs) This whole idea of the father wanting to be with me, yeah. depending on your family structure, that blows your mind. Yeah. So that's why you have to learn. Mike, going back to your original question, that's why I have to be learning about the full, robust trinity. And to piggyback off that, Jesus makes this profound statement, it's good that I go mm. so that the spirit comes. I mean, if you just stop and think about that for a second, I mean, Jesus... It, it's good that I go. I mean, kind of think, don't go, Jesus. Like right away, you're thinking like, wait, don't leave. Yeah, exactly. And but what what was he revealing? He's revealing the triune God there. The Spirit, the the Comforter, is going to come. That the Spirit's coming. This is good for you. Revealing who God is more fully. If He doesn't go, then that revelation and some I, I don't quite understand all of why that is, but. The, the fullness of God revealing himself, the spirit coming is in some ways held back. And so it's that the father bringing us to the father, but also on the other side of why do we need to understand the Trinity? Because Jesus, it mattered that the spirit came. It mattered that he went away so the spirit could come. The spirit was poured out on us. So when you, you get into these aspects of scripture where the fullness of the Trinity is revealed, you see it, it really does matter for us to know worship God, our discipleship, our understanding of how we're transformed, the, the role of the Spirit in our life. Uh, so 
as you as you kind of dig deeper into this, Mike, this question, which is a good question, I think you can you can really start to see the the profound nature, which is an argument for why we should read theologians like Bavink, because Bavink is relentlessly Trinitarian in all his theology. He operates from a foundation of Trinitarian understanding of all theology, and not all theologians do that. Yeah, that's true. Um, he mentions, by the way, and this is just, he's being a good historian too. He says, hey, let me tell you about the two major Trinitarian errors in history. One is Arianism, who Arius was a presbyter uh, in the fourth century who held that the son of God was a created being, that the father alone was eternal and that, that at some point the son came into being and that therefore the Holy Spirit was some other kind of attribute or quality of God but was not the same as God. And then on the other side, there was Sibelianism, um, and Sibelianism is uh, also called modalism. Uh, it's just the, the idea that God wears different hats. It's the same God; He just reveals Himself different ways at different times. You know, this is why this is why the analogy of water, ice, and water vapor is a vapor, bad analogy. Yeah. It's like it's never all three. It's at modalism, the same time, Patrick. Right? It's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> so um, it's uh, so He says, "Hey, Arianism and modalism are always with us." There's there's the doctrine of the Trinity is always in danger of being co-opted or being um, confused into um, one of the persons of the Trinity is the real God and the other two are lesser or into there's one God who sort of wears three different hats or takes on three different roles or displays himself in three different modes. And he says, always and again, the church and each one of its members must be on guard against doing injustice on the one hand to the oneness of the divine being. And on the other hand, to the three persons within that being. The oneness may not be sacrificed to the diversity, nor the diversity to the oneness. To maintain both in their inseparable connection and in their pure relationship is the calling of all believers. I think that's really, really important and helpful. Um, and it's what Bavink is doing, he's always doing theology contextually. And so basically what he's giving you is he's giving you categories of like, all right, I have the Trinity. That's the orthodox category. And then I have Arianism and Sibelianism. Those are sort of the two sides of the horse that people can fall off on. And he says that basically, if you want to just say, what shape does that take in the modern world that actually doesn't, you know, it's not thinking about God. Um, the heresies are deism, mm. which is like a belief in God in general without a God who's revealed himself in Christ and through the spirit. So you have deism and you have pantheism mm. or paganism. And he's like, those are the those are the same two errors, you know. That just it it's a it's a secular version of those sort of heresies. Of there's just a, there's only one God, and he sort of isn't really involved, and he hasn't really revealed himself in his word and through his son. Or um, there's just sort of like a everything is God, God is everywhere, God is in everything. You know, this this undifferentiated sort of God everywhere and everything. Uh, and he says that's always the dual tendency in the human heart the tendency to think of God as distant and removed or to draw God down into the world and identify him with the world and so to deify the self and the world. Um, and another way to think about that, John Frame taught me this, but he, Bavink is doing the same thing. As he's, he's just saying the Christian revelation always holds together God's imminence and his transcendence, God's otherness and God's presence with us. And any sub-Christian or non-Christian understanding of reality always sacrifices one or the other of those things. It's God is so far removed from us that we can't possibly know him, or God is so near us that we pull him down and sort of make him one of us. 
Um, and those are always the two dangers, the two imbalances we can fall into. And proper Trinitarian theology holds that together, says God is transcendent, he is beyond us, and he is also imminent, he is with us. And it's a proper doctrine of the Trinity that allows us to hold all that together. Another thought that just came to mind, too, is the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us why we are communal beings, Hmm. that God within himself, there is this rich community that has existed eternally. And so why, those of us made in the image of God, why are we just hardwired for community? Why was the pandemic so hard? Exactly. The Trinity. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) The the pandemic was hard because of the Trinity. (laughs) So your your church isn't just about community because that's your thing? No, it's not just because it's a cool word. <laughs> That's awesome. We do community. We do life together. Oh, yeah. Um, there's actually, I mean, this is implicit in Bovink here, but there um, prepositions sometimes help us when we're thinking about the Trinity. So I already mentioned, um, I'm trying to find it on the exact page here. That's why you can hear my pages flipping in the background. Um but where he talks about that election, forgiveness, and renewal are the th- are three aspects of salvation, and election is ascribed to the Father, forgiveness to the Son, renewal to the Holy Spirit. Um, but prepositions can be helpful. So elsewhere in the chapter, Bavink says, just as all things are of the Father and through the Son, they all exist and rest in the Holy Spirit. Or you sometimes hear people say, Christian prayer is prayer to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Just the, the prepositions matter, right? And so there's those different prepositions to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, or of the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Th- these are ways of thinking about how our worship and our prayer and our proclamation take shape and properly honors each person of the Trinity. And so this is one of those places where like prepositions are good. They help us. Um, and they help us think about uh, how to properly glorify each person of the Trinity and how we speak about them. All right, uh, what other... Okay, here we go. Here's another one, sorry. Again on page 141. The Father is he from whom, the Son is he through whom, and the Spirit is he in whom all things are. So there you go. Um, One final note I want to make, and then we'll just talk about sort of takeaways from the chapter. Um, When we think about the distinctions within a divine being, the the Bavink here uses the language of... um, Father, Son, and Spirit share one and the same divine nature and characteristics. They are one being. Sometimes Trinitarian theology will speak of God having one essence. Nevertheless, each has his own name by which he is distinguished from others. The Father alone has fatherhood. The Son alone has generation. And the Spirit alone possesses the quality of proceeding. So think about those the relationships between the triune God the Father alone possesses fatherhood, the Son alone possesses generation, the Spirit alone possesses the quality of proceeding. That's a way of thinking about this is one God, one being, one essence, one nature, three persons, and what distinguishes the persons are their modes of relation to one another. And that's, again, the best we can do with human language to describe the distinctions in the divine being. We should do a podcast on eternal generation sometime. Let's do it. That'll be fun. Does Bob, Bob Inc. doesn't have a chapter on that, I don't does think he? So. Okay. All right. So, um, <laughs> any final takeaways uh, as you sort of reflect on the chapter, the book, this topic of the, the Holy Trinity? 
I don't have any thoughts about this chapter per se, but this is only one chapter. What other resources do you recommend that people uh, pick up to kind of dive more into understanding and knowing the language and being able to practice the language of the Trinity? The two books I've read recently are Scott Swain's book um, on the Trinity. I think is what it's the called. Trinity introduction. The or, Trinity. Yeah. It's in the Crossway Short Studies in Systematic Theology. And then Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity, is it even a little more basic, I think more accessible to the average person. I just want to encourage listeners, you you gotta work a little bit if you're gonna think about the Trinity. It's not it's not like the cookies aren't on the bottom shelf. We're talking about the nature of God. So don't be don't be afraid. Don't be off put by philosophical categories. Just this is work we need to do to sort of think as well as we can about God and try to get ourselves into the conversation about the Trinity and the sort of good theological work that's been done throughout history. It's not easy, but it's good and important. What are your thoughts on delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves? I haven't Reeves? read that one. Okay. I know it's on our book tale, but I haven't yeah, read it. I've read yeah. it a couple of times over the last year. It's really good. Yeah, that's another one I'd recommend. If you, if you want to read a systematic theology that does pretty much what Boving does, but goes a little bit more into detail... Uh, John Frame's Systematic Theology volume, when, when he covers the Trinity, it's, he's he's following in the the same line of reasoning as as Bavink, but he just he kind of unpacks each of these points a little bit more. I think, especially when you look at how the seeds are sort of sown in the Old Testament, it's it's amazing. You read you read Frame and you're like, whoa, like this mm-hmm. this is all over the Bible in some really rich ways. Um, well, next month we tackle chapter eleven which is on creation and providence. So we're going to go from the Holy Trinity to God's works of creation and providence. Creation meaning God's initial creation and the providence being his upholding and sustaining of all things. So we will continue our journey uh, next month. And until then, enjoy, friends, your reading and thinking about God. Guys, by the way, I'm going to ask Bethany. We were reading out loud as a team yesterday, and Bethany got this word. What's What's the word? Tetragrammaton. There you go. And what is the Tetragrammaton? It's a video game. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a new COVID it variant. One of those things where I, I read, yeah, it's a new COVID variant. I read it and I, I was like blacked out. I didn't, I didn't comprehend yeah, just anything keep going. that I You was did reading. such a great job reading the word. You just kept going. Yeah. It's the, it's the sort of like super technical term for the four letters YHWH in Hebrew, which is God's, God's, you know, covenant name. So I don't. I guess that's a super Greeky way of saying it. Chris, where does the word tetragram like why do we call that the tetragrammaton? I forgot. It's just I it's basically a way of saying there's four letters in yeah. this word and it's a super <laughs> holy word. Yeah. So rather than saying Yahweh like Bono did, we're just gonna call it Bethany. Just don't say Jehovah. Tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton. That's your you big know. word for the day, friends. <laughs> The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.